Philippians chapter 2, verse number 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of, say it with me, Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those are my favorite verses in the entire book of Philippians. I love those verses because they have everything I like to get out of a Bible passage. They have some good theology, some actually some deep theology. We won't go real deep in it tonight, but we will touch on it. But it's got some practical exhortation, and then it's got some clear instruction. So not only do I get to learn, I get to engage my mind theologically, I, I get to evaluate my heart relationally. Where am I with other people? And then ultimately, I have some clear commands to obey from God. And I love it when the Word of God tells me what to do. I am not the smartest person in this room. I used to say I'm not the swiftest gazelle in the flock. I'm just not. But I do know this. When God gives a clear command, I can obey it. You know how I know that? I have two dogs at home. And they know how to obey. And I know I've got more in me than Zoe and what's the other one's name? Gio. Thank you. Gio's not, he's on the naughty list right now. But if they can obey, I know that I can obey. So let's go back up into these verses. I'm going to bring you a message called Rearranging Your Soul. Because I'm going to be completely honest with you. The easiest work that God did in my life was what we just celebrated earlier during worship. When the easiest work was to break the chains of addiction off of me. He did it in a day. He didn't even do it in a day. He did it in a millisecond. It was just gone. That was the easiest work he ever did. I remember when I got free, I was thinking to myself, this is awesome. And everything was new. Everything looked great. The sky was bluer. The grass was cleaner. The air was more refreshing. I felt strong. I felt hope. I felt all this stuff. And I was like, oh, this Christian life is going to be great. But what's amazing is the further I walked with the Lord, the more he started saying, I'm not done with you yet. The more he moved from my addictions and then he moved into my actions, just my day-to-day actions, and then he did something that I thought was unfair. He started dealing with my attitudes. Addictions, no problem. Actions, well, that took a little work in a few areas, but attitudes, he still's not done. And so when this passage finds me, I'm realizing that the work that he began in 1994, he's still working on me today and he is still working on you. What is he doing? He's rearranging your soul. This passage tells us that when Jesus saves us, some amazing things happen, but that there are also some things that he calls us into a partnership with him in order that certain elements might come to pass in our life and they'll be displayed in our relationship. So let's, let's start out in verse number one. I'm going to go quickly through verse number one. I call this a healthy reminder of our vertical experience. When I'm talking about our vertical experience, I'm talking about our salvation as individual believers, sinners saved by grace, our sins atoned for by the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have a vertical relationship with God. Here's the first thing I find in verse number one. We are spiritually strengthened. Now that's a no-brainer, but here it's expressed in this way. Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, it has the sense of um, clearly you have been encouraged in Christ. It takes it for granted that you have been encouraged. And that's just a word that means comforted. 
It, it indicates that he came alongside of us. He came to our, our side in order to meet us in our hour of need, not just when we got saved, but he continues to do that. But when we were found ourselves dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from God by our wicked works, Sinners, in a sense, in the hands of an angry God. When we found that reality and we recognized that our sins were not simply breaking the rules, but violating the most precious relationship ever, when, when that fear found us, because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, when that fear found us, the Holy Spirit moves in with the gospel of Jesus, moves in with this call to, to hope, this call to life, this call to believe, this call to faith and trust, this call to throw all of ourself upon the Lord. And when we did so, we found out that he was not one that was there to judge and destroy us, but when we repented and we believed, he was one that cleansed us and saved us and made us brand new. And hence, we clearly have encouragement in Christ. So moving from that reality that we've been spiritually strengthened. We are also reassured about our burdens because the very same salvation that brings us encouragement in our spirit reassures us about our burdens. And we, we, Paul says if there's any encouragement in Christ or any comfort from love. Now, let me make this practical. And, and again, the word just simply means what it says. It means comfort. But what is Paul referring to here? The reality is, is that most of us tend to have guilty consciences in some areas in our life. The, the enemy is not done accusing the brethren, and that's just an old English way of saying he's an accuser. He attacks you at the place of your weakness. The, the devil knows your sins, and he knows your weaknesses, and he knows your struggles. He's not omnipresent. He can't get in your head, but he is a master of observing human nature. And listen, the demons in, that exist in this realm, they have nothing to do but observe and harass. That's just their assignment. They want to steal, kill, and destroy. And so when we feel those griefs, when we feel those those pains and those shame and that, that, that sense of guilt, the Holy Spirit comes in and he starts to whisper truth unto us. The Holy Spirit begins to say, Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus told the Father that he completed the work that the Father gave him to do. Jesus paid for it all on the cross. Jesus took the wrath of the Father. Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath in the garden. Jesus paid for it all on the cross. There's nothing left unpaid for. And you, child, have believed, so be comforted. Be comforted. See, the Holy Spirit is not just some... We have so many different views of the Holy Spirit, but I want you to know that he is called the comforter. And it is literally a Greek word that means one who comes alongside of you. He comes alongside of you to defend you, to, to state your case, to be able to, to give you that relief of knowing that you don't bear these burdens alone anymore. And Paul says, in essence, to the church at Philippi, he says, have you been encouraged in Christ? Have you experienced any comfort from his love? And then again, we are always accompanied. Any participation in the Spirit. The old English word there, I, I was, I was kind of, I cut my teeth on the King James Bible. And it talked about the fellowship of the Spirit. And what it means is a partnership. It just means that there, it, it isn't God way up there and you down here waiting to get way up there one day. But God lives inside of you. And so there is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He literally dwells within you. You are the temple of God. He makes his abode in you. And he's not just kind of hibernating in there. He's working at, at honing your senses, your, your, what, what you do with your life, what you think with your mind, what you say with your mouth. And so there is this partnership of you and the Holy Spirit. Now listen, all of us ought to be able to measure some growth in the Spirit. Uh, I, I would say this boldly but gently, if, if there is no change in your life since you uh, recognize Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, I, I would suggest that if there's no change, then you might have a mental recognition that he is Lord, but you've not had an inward surrender yet. Because when you surrender to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters you, and all of a sudden there is this participation in the Spirit. He participates in you, you participate with him, and there is a partnership. He's sanctifying you. He's changing you. Now, don't beat yourself up that you're not fully glorified yet, but at the same time, don't excuse yourself from entering into this ongoing, growing relationship with the Holy Spirit. He never leaves you. When you go to bed tonight, your, your brain will kind of go into, your body will kind of go into a, a deep sleep. 
Your, your mind will begin to act in ways that it doesn't act when you're awake. But through all of that, the Holy Spirit does not slumber. He does not sleep. He is in you. He can speak to you while you're asleep. He can speak through dreams. He can speak through words. Sometimes I will wake up and I'm not awake more than a second. And the Holy Spirit will give me a nugget and I'll, I'll know it. Most of the messages I preach, God plants a seed as soon as I wake up and then it germinates all day. What is that? It's participation in the Spirit. Some of you are stay-at-home moms or your grandparents that you are taking care of children and you, you know in your own strength you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the energy, you don't have the ingenuity, and yet somehow you made it through another day today. Somehow you're able to keep those kids alive and fed and clothed and you're going to do it again tomorrow. And listen, don't take the credit for that. Don't just say, that's all me. No, it's actually a partnership with God the Spirit working through you. Some of you are businessmen and businesswomen and the ingenuity that you have, it's not just simply that you're a bright bulb. That may be part of the equation, but the reality is if, you're, if you are progressing and advancing in ways, we've got to slow down from time to time and give God the glory for that, that it's not just us being clever or slick or, or the most uh, you know, elite in our, in our industry. We're, we're doing life in the Spirit. So Paul says, are you encouraged in Christ? Have you ever been comforted through his love? Are you partnering with the Holy Spirit? And then he gives this. And this is something I long for for all believers. And not all believers have hit this yet, but we are deeply touched within. He, he uses these words. He asks, is there any affection? Is there any sympathy? These are words that aren't too really distinct from each other, but they're, it's the sensory response to your salvation. It, it literally, the word affection there in the Greek means your innards. The Greek world, they, we, we, we always say heart, and that's what we mean by you know, kind of like who we really are in our heart. In, in the old Greco world, it was, it was this word translated here, affection. It literally means the bowels, the innards. If you still use the King James, it probably does right there say any bowels and mercies that are in you. What, what it's talking about is this sense of who God is his activity, his presence, and his love deep within you. I went for uh, a little while, frankly years, in and out of feeling God's presence. I, I went through a long phase where I just trained myself, well, it doesn't matter if I don't feel him because I've got theology. And so I rested in my the theology, but I want to promise you something. Theology doesn't meet the deepest needs of, of, of the regenerated heart. It'd be like me and Amy. We're married, but if all she did was write me letters but never let me kiss her, that's not the kind of marriage I want. That's, that's not how families are built. We, we, we want connection. We want sensory relationship. And when Paul is writing here, he's assuming some things. He's assuming that as, as the uh, church in Philippi is comprised of Christians that they've been encouraged that they've been comforted that they're doing life in the spirit and that they actually feel God now before moving on to the next point I'm, I'm going to challenge you if you don't feel God don't teach yourself that that's okay now don't be condemned by it don't feel accused and, okay, i got to drum something up. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm going to promise you something. There are so many layers of, 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 of the human being, uh, our emotions, our thought life, our experiences, our wounds, all of that stuff. And a lot of that stuff can get in the way of you feeling the pulse of God's love. And you've got to get to the place where you say, God, I'm tired of knowing about you. I want to feel you. I remember once upon a time when I was in a bold moment, I told the Lord not to let me learn anything more about him until I was feeling what I had already learned. And he did it. He literally brought me into a place where I, I, I desired his presence more than I did the next revelation from the word. And the, the reality is this, is we don't have to pick between the two. He wants to give revelation. He wants us to grow in our understanding. He wants us to know good, sound Bible theology, but he doesn't want to do it from a distance. He wants you to sense his paternity, his fatherhood, his love, his nearness. He actually wants you to know not just that he loves you generally like he loves the entire human race, but he wants you to know that he loves you and he enjoys you. He actually enjoys you. He likes you. Doesn't mean he endorses everything that comes out of our lives, but he's not this cosmic killjoy that sits up in heaven saying, 
I wish I hadn't saved her because now I've got to let her into heaven, but she drives me nuts. It's not the way he operates. If, if we could get quiet and still, I, I promise you, just begin to pray simple prayers. Lord, let me feel your love for me. Let me, before you start worrying, well, I don't know if I feel love for him. Well, that comes later because you loved him. You will love him because he first loved you. And so when you begin to sense his love and his value of you, you will experience all of these things that Paul is talking about here, this healthy reminder of our vertical experience. Now, I could end the message there and we'd have plenty to think about, but I want to go a little bit further because Paul, as he usually does, when he talks about the vertical experience, very nearby, he's going to talk about the horizontal experience, and that's verses 2 through 7. So let's look at this, because I'm going to assume those of you that are here that have accepted Christ and you've experienced varying degrees of his presence and his work in your life. I know we're not done yet, but he is, he is here and he is working in each of us as individuals. Well, that's going to affect our horizontal relationships. And I know it's so popular in American individualistic society to say, it's just me and God. Just me and God. That's why people don't come to church anymore because it's just me and God. I've got my Bethel music. I've got my, I've got my uh, John Piper podcast or whoever your favorite preacher is. And I, all I got to do is just pop in a little Bethel, man, get me some Piper on, have a hot cup of coffee and got, you know, whatever y'all are doing out there. I don't know. But the, the reality is, is that's not his intention for us. You can do all of that stuff, but not as a replacement for pursuing horizontal relationships with others in the body of Christ and frankly, being witnesses to those that are outside of the body of Christ. So Paul is about to mess with us here. Anybody in the mood to get messed with? If not, you better run because here we go. This expectation of our horizontal experience includes, first of all, an intentional pursuit of unity. Now, you, if you've been around Newbridge or IHOP for a while, you've heard lots of messages and emphasis on unity. Paul says here, if you've experienced all the things in verse number one, then I want you to complete my joy by being this, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So Paul is talking to a group of believers that live in the same area, and they're doing life with each other in Philippi. And remember where he is? Where's Paul when he's writing this letter? He's in prison. Now watch this. He says, I'm riding from jail, and my joy is almost filled. And my joy is almost at level 10 of 10, but I need something to complete my joy. Now, if it's Jeff writing the letter, it would be this. Fulfill, fulfill my joy by getting me out of this prison. Fulfill my joy by clearing my name. Fulfill my joy by ordering dominoes and having it sent here because I'm hungry. I, it, but Paul says this. I want you to complete my joy by letting me hear that you all are operating in unity together. That's how important it was to him. Paul was in essence saying, until I know that my Philippian brothers and sisters are intentionally pursuing unity together, then I can't quite say my joy, my apostolic joy is complete. He breaks it down into a couple of different phrases, but he's basically saying the same thing. He says, I want you to have the same mind. He actually says that twice in verse 2. I want you to have the same mind. Now listen, the Bible never teaches us that we have to think exactly the same about all things. That's not unity. That's called uniformity. Uniformity means we all look alike, we all think alike, we all act alike, we all smell alike, we all go to the same places, we all say no to the same things. That's uniformity, and that's not the design of the Lord. Romans chapter 14 and 15 teach us how to do life together when we don't agree on things. So what is he talking about? When he's saying, I want you to be of the same mind, he's talking about the gospel. If you'll go back up into chapter 1 and the first verse in chapter number 2, you're going to see that Paul is centering on Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So Paul, let me say it a little stronger, God through his word, through the pen of the apostle Paul, wants all of us to be thinking the same things about the gospel, about the Lord Jesus Christ about who he is, what he has accomplished, and what that means. And there is no, you got your gospel, I got my gospel. Hey, we all got a little bit of our own flavor on the gospel. No, we have to be of the same mind when it comes to that. And then in those areas that are not gospel-centered, 
where we disagree, he says this, I want you to have the same love. Love is the solution to 99% of horizontal relational problems. And love is not the typical worldly definition of love. The world, our culture's definition of love is, if you love me, you're going to make me feel really good about myself. And if you don't make me feel really good about myself, you're a hater. And that's such a false presentation of love. Biblically speaking, love means this, and we're going to see it unpacked here in a minute, that, that I am literally living in a way that benefits you even if it's at my expense. I'm seeking your highest good. That doesn't mean you always get what you want. As a matter of fact, if we're seeking, let's say, for instance, our children's highest good, there better be some no, you can't do that involved. There's got to be some boundaries. There's got to be some discipline because how many of us know that a child that is never told no, A, they don't turn out real well, and B, they don't end up feeling loved when they grow up because their parents never taught them no. Um, I've counseled a lot of teenagers and young adults who were bitter with their parents for giving them everything they ever wanted. And so when Paul is saying this, he's saying, you have to have the same love so we can disagree and still love each other. Listen, if I split the room right now and said, what'd you think about the State of the Union address? We'd have a hundred different opinions right now. And you know what? Some people would fail to love somebody that disagreed with them over something as stupid as that. And, and the reality is this. We don't have to agree about that. We don't have to agree about politics. We don't have to agree about sports teams. We don't have to agree about all of this stuff that our culture loves to fight about it, but we do have to have the same mind about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there is no um, uh, option B for that. And we have to live in full accord. That means we have to work at it with each other. Um, I'll just go out on a limb here. It's probably a very sturdy one. I, I think there's probably some in the room that you're sideways with another Christian over something that God doesn't even care about. That, that you just got kind of, uh-oh, like that with somebody, and y'all are walking around each other like that, and you're trying to pull off the, I'm right with God. You're not right with God. You're all bent out of shape. She's all bent out of shape. He's all bent out of shape, and you're playing around. What happened? Somebody didn't love somebody. Somebody didn't take seriously the command to be in uh, one accord with their brothers and sisters. And so that takes a lot of work. Christian relationships take work. And, and what the... I'm trying to make this positive, but I've, I've got this prosecutor in me that wants to say, this, the, the reality is we have so many churches that if we get sideways with another Christian, we don't really have to work it out. We'll just go to a different church. And, and of course, they didn't have that in Philippi. And Philippi said, uh, Paul, Paul would say, you guys have to work it out. You don't have anywhere else to go. Because Christians were persecuted and they were hated and they were despised and they had to come together oftentimes in a communal kind of living. And, and in those close quarters, Paul said, it's so essential that you have the same mind about the gospel, that you love one another unconditionally and selflessly, and that you live out your lives in full accord. And anybody want to raise their hand and say they've graduated in that? Got any masters, any PhDs in that area? Me neither. That's why we're commanded in the scripture. If it was easy, the command wouldn't be needed. But the command makes us say, oh, God takes this seriously. We'll go a little bit further. Wow, none of you got up and walked out during that. That's awesome. There's still time. Here we go. Verse number three. It's a perpetual commitment to deeper humility. This is also a clear expectation of our horizontal relationships. A perpetual commitment to deeper humility. Look at what he says. I just let my Bible say what it says. Do nothing, Jeff, from selfish ambition or conceit. But in opposite of that, in humility, Jeff, count others more significant than Jeff. That's how I read that. Would you like to take a moment and read verse number three and put your name there? Do nothing from selfish ambition, fill in the blank, or conceit, fill in the blank, but in humility, fill in the blank, count others more significant than you fill in the blank. All of that's your name. <laughs> I could work on this the rest of my life and still have room to grow because there's no wobble room. Do you realize how, um, that's the right word, it's kind of wobbly on things that Scripture is concrete about. 
we read that as if it's framed up in, in latex, but it's actually written in steel. It, there is no wobble room there. Literally, in order to preserve the unity of the faith, the Bible tells me that I am forbidden from doing anything in my life out of selfish ambition. Now, very clearly here, I, I want to be careful. Ambition doesn't necessarily have to be bad. Ambition speaks of an inner drive towards excellence. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's why the word selfish is there. The word selfish in the English is describing this Greek word, selfish ambition, but it clarifies it for us that there's a type of ambition that we're forbidden from. It's the type of ambition that says, um, I need to get over there, and that person looks like a good step for me to walk over. Uh, I, I need this out of life, and I think I can utilize this person to make that happen. Or I've got a decision to make. If I decide this, it's going to cost me, and they're going to get blessed. But if I decide this, it's, it's going to cost them, and I'm going to get blessed. And so selfish ambition says, let's let it cost them so I get the blessing. But humility, which is the other side of the coin, says, no, here's a chance to be like Jesus. Holy Spirit, you're in me. Spirit of Jesus Christ is in me. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to lower myself. And I'm going to say the other person is more important than me right now. And do you know that your flesh will never, ever motivate you to do that? Your flesh is a tyrant. Your flesh demands to be fed constantly, and it doesn't care what you've got to do to feed it. It wants what it wants for itself. But you are not dominated by the flesh if you are in the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit within you will be saying, serve the other person in this instance. Don't vaunt yourself. Don't exalt yourself. Don't, don't thrust yourself to the foreground. Wait on the Lord. Be patient. In due time, God will exalt you if you will intentionally humble yourself. And it's a perpetual commitment because I'm going to tell you what often we do. We're like, okay, Lord, I have humbled myself 14 times. I would really like this one to be about me. Can we let the next time be about me? Because I have humbled myself 14 times in a row. I don't know if you were counting, but I was counting. And, and especially if it's with the same person. Because oftentimes it can be that. When the Lord's testing you on this, he'll call you to humble yourself in front of the same person over and over and over again, and they're eating it up. And they're not humbling back. You're thinking, okay, it's your turn now. And they're not hearing any of that. And, and the Lord is actually having a one-way conversation with you. Oh, he's talking to them, too, if they're listening. But if they're not listening, he's still going to be talking to you. I, I got really convicted over this just in, in my family. Amy and I were talking about this this weekend, that sometimes we just choose ourselves and don't even realize it. And usually it's in, in moments of impatience or where you're stressed and you don't... You just don't feel like you have the bandwidth to be the giver one more time. And it's real easy for us to excuse that. But when I read verses like this, I wish I'd read this last week because it probably would have helped me this weekend. But when I read it this week, I'm like, oh, yeah, it actually says, hey, Jeff, don't do anything in self-preservation or self-promotion. Don't, don't be conceited. Don't think of yourself higher than other people. Can we grasp that? That's mandated. So nobody would in here would say we can negotiate the command, thou shalt not kill, right? That's a non-negotiable. We're not allowed to murder. Um, we're not allowed to steal. We're not allowed to take the name of the Lord in vain. But I want you to know the same authority that said all of the Ten Commandments also says don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but humble yourself and count other people more important than you. <laughs> so quiet in here <laughs> I know it's hard it's 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 not easy but listen you're here tonight in part because you're wanting to grow and this is how the Lord grows us the Lord brings truth on our misconceptions our our default patterns of behavior he interrupts us and he doesn't do it with a ah, that's not the way he treats his kids if we'll respond properly now, if you're still doing the same thing in nine months, you might get the, ah, from God because he'll discipline us. But the reality is, is that we can obey this. 
If you have the Holy Spirit, you can obey this. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is, is the spirit of Jesus. It's Jesus' spirit living within you, and Jesus did this. Jesus washed Judas's feet on the night he was betrayed. Jesus literally treated Judas with the same honor that he treated Peter and James and John and the others, knowing full well that Judas was about to go out and betray him. And if Jesus did that for Judas and Jesus' spirit lives in me, I don't have a Judas in my life. So I know I can do that for other people in my life, and so can you. So go a little bit further, verse number four. The, all of these are connected, by the way, talking about pursuing unity, committing ourselves more deeply to humility, and then advancing others. Verse number four, this is awesome. This is actually can, can start attaching itself uh, to, to the way you live your life. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, don't take care of yourself. Don't, don't read it to this. I'm a worm, I can't have anything, I'm not allowed to enjoy anything, I, I'm just, you know, that's not what it's saying, that's, that's a perverted view of humility. What it's saying is don't look only to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. It means actually strategizing and um, kind of directing your life to where your life is a benefit to other people's interests to what God's assigning them. Most of these are in the context of relationships within the body of Christ. Because, listen, I mean, I am a little bit of a skeptic. If you have to tilt one way or the other, I definitely don't tilt fully optimistic. I tilt a little bit skeptical. That's just kind of the way I'm wired. But I think I'm accurate when I'm saying that most people, and even a lot of people in the church, many people in the church, just kind of lean towards hoping people will serve their interests. And the Bible says, no, 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 don't do that. Actually, guide your life and strategize your life to where you're, you're making opportunities to be God's hands and feet and, and mouth and ears in, in the lives of other people as they are living out their interests that God has given them. The word interest, by the way, is not in the Greek word. It was uh, Greek text. It was supplied by the translators. So if you really want to get it accurate, it says this. You don't look out for you only, you look out for others. And, and so literally that, that God's inviting us into the partnership with the Holy Spirit to be a blessing to other people. So very practically here, who in your life right now are you strategically looking to help? That's, that's where we find out if we're doing this or not because anybody can preach this stuff. The, the reality is who are we actively looking to help? And so, remember the old phrase that came out about 25 years ago, going about doing random acts of kindness? You know, I don't think that's altogether unbiblical. I don't know that it sourced itself in a Christian uh, point of origin, but I just go out and bless people. Make, pick somebody in life. Ask, ask God, Holy Spirit, show me somebody in my life that I can help. And then begin to do it in a way that requires love, that requires sacrifice, it requires humility, it requires intentionality, and it requires, uh, it requires a, a oneness of heart with them. So this is where your Bible gets very practical. It's not just, hey, let's hold up in a, you know, a perpetual seminary and learn more Bible verses, more and more and more and more and more. Listen, you already know more than you'll ever use in your life. It doesn't mean we shouldn't grow and we shouldn't study, but I'm going to tell you this. If we never got to understand anything else in the Bible, we would still have enough knowledge to occupy ourselves with for the rest of our lives, and it would be gloriously good. And so one of those things, I think, when the body of Christ comes together, look, look and find out who you can help and be wide open for God to lay somebody in your path that you never would have thought that you'd be helping. That, that literally, it may be a person that requires you to learn a whole different culture, a whole different way of doing things. Maybe, a, you know, you have to break through communication barriers. I just think that God's going to be calling so many of us into uh, a holy adventure with him. We've lost our sense of wonder and adventure. And, and God wants to bring us out of the, the boxed-in Christianity that has been defined by the last hundred years in, in the American church. And God wants to return us to our organic roots where our lives are actually spilling into other lives more than for two hours a week on a Sunday. So verse number five through eight, because this is where 
this is where we find our motivation for all of this. It's this refusal to live in self-promotion or preservation. Who exemplifies that? Well, Paul's going to tell us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. You already have it. You just need to use it. It is yours in Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, though he was in, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're going to hunker down here for a minute. I may not get to the other verses, but I want to get these, and I want to give them a little bit of justice here. Um, First of all, Paul wants us to use the mind of Christ, which we have access to because he lives within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So we just lost our excuse to say, I can't do this. Well, if you can't do this, it's only because you ain't saved. If you're saved, you can do this. Why? Because the one who actually does it lives within you. You just cooperate with him. And yes, there are some learned skills and behaviors. And yes, we have to crucify our flesh and our impulses to be all about us. We have to put those to death. But he says, I want you to apprehend this. I want you to get this. And I want you to do it through Jesus. And then he gives us some statements. He's talking about the humility of Jesus Christ. Remember, the Son of God, God the Son, eternal God, Jesus Christ, who existed in eternity before there was ever a speck of the created order. So he is God of God. He is all God. And yet, watch this. From the pinnacle of angelic worship in the throne room of heaven where constantly there is the cry of holy, holy, holy on this one who is the son of God. He leaves that. He comes up from up and comes down. The Bible says he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, I'm going to give you a big word here. It's a big $5 word. It is pre-incarnate humiliation, uh, humi- humbling. Pre-incarnate humility is what I was trying to say. So before he was Jesus the baby, he was God, but as God, he did not uh, count his equality with Father and Spirit as something to be clutched, something to be held on to. But in humility, before he ever came to the earth, he expressed humility. And he said, I will not hold on to my status as God in heaven, worshiped night and day by the angels. I will relinquish that. So before he ever got to earth, he was showing humility. Um, From that point, he comes down, and it is impossible for you or I to fathom, not the metric distance between the eternal throne room of God and Mary's womb, but the the spiritual distance, that God became an infant in the womb. He literally, embryonic in the womb of Mary, 40 weeks of gestation, going through the normal human growth inside of the womb. But he did all of that because he was humble in glory, came to Mary's womb. He took upon the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men so God for the first time had a body a body that he would live in perpetually for 33 years on planet earth but he did it all in humility this is what Paul's trying to say remember he's just told them to humble themselves and and seek to bless other people and he's saying the only way you do this is to think like Jesus well Paul how did Jesus think well when Jesus was eternally worshipped in heaven, he didn't hold on to that status and, and, and clutch it, refusing to let go of it. But in humility, he came down to earth and was made in the form of a human being in the womb of a virgin. But it didn't stop there. Because once he was born, Jesus, the Son of God, lived as the Son of Man. There's a few verses in Scripture that will really challenge your theology. Like when it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Jesus grew in wisdom? Isn't he omniscient? But here's the mystery of the incarnation, that he who is fully God in some way, we don't know exactly how, submitted some of his divine faculties to the human experience. 
Now, listen, you're only one step away from heresy if you say too much about that, so I'm being very careful here. But the reality is, is that Jesus did not use his divine powers for his own self-advancement. When you see him using his divine powers, it's not to put on a magic show. It's not to invite everybody to the charismatic circus. What Jesus is doing is he's using his divine powers to reveal the glory of God. And he becomes a servant to the Father as he lived out uh, his humanity. Jesus said, I only do what the Father is doing. I only say what the Father is speaking. And the Father said that Jesus did those things which pleased him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus testified in another place, I always do the things that please the Father. What is that? That is humility. Jesus, fully divine, submitted himself to the Father. And so living as a servant, coming from heaven's throne to a womb, to a womb into the earth, but in the earth, not living as as a royal king, not using all of his divine attributes to bring himself forced glory, not destroying all of his enemies, which he could have done. Could have destroyed the devil and every demon and every human enemy. He never did that in his first coming. Oh, by the way, there'll be a second coming and all of that will be taken care of. Let's not forget that. But in his incarnation, he just kept humbling himself and serving and serving and serving and serving. You know, when you get to the crowd that day where he's on trial, the question is asked, what shall we do with Jesus? And they didn't hesitate. Crucify him. Bloodthirsty crowd. Crucify him! Crucify him! They were all stirred up by the chief priests and the scribes, and those were the religious leaders. And and you've got to know this, that in that crowd, there are people that saw his miracles. There may have been people that experienced his miracles. I guarantee you, there were people that had eaten fish and chips on the hillside that day when he took that boy's lunch and and, and broke it into a, a buffet for everybody. And the people that he loved, and the people that he served, and the people that he healed, and the people that he blessed, and the people that he taught, cried out for his murder. They cried out to kill him. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. And the Bible goes on to say that in verse 8, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Do you remember when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? He, who was the full radiance and embodiment of life, bowed to death so that we who lived in death because of our sin could be raised to life that's what he just kept humbling himself even one step further the death of the cross the cross in jesus's day was not an ornament to be worn on a gold chain i don't have any problem with that if you've got a cross on a gold chain but in jesus's day even in roman culture They didn't talk about the cross because it was an instrument of torture, excruciating torture, death, and and just disgusting depravity. It was reserved for criminals. It was used as an emblem of fear. And so nobody thought of the cross in the way that we do post-crucifixion. They didn't think of it that way. Um, I've said this before. Now... um, the last 50 years it's been electric chair and now lethal injection wouldn't you find it strange if somebody showed up to work with a nice gold chain and an electric chair hanging on it or a syringe you'd be like what is up with that guy because we would say that's just that's how the cross was viewed in their day and on top of that in the mosaic law it taught that the one hanged on a tree or a cross is cursed of god So watch this. Jesus' humility took him from the throne room of God where he shared glory with God. That's John 17. Uh, I finished the work which you gave me to do. Uh, Now, Father, restore me to the glory that I had with you before the world was. He went from shared glory to humanity to servanthood to death to becoming a curse. He took the curse of sin upon him, my sin, your sin. So that's why Paul said, 
have that kind of mind in you. Because we're not going to be asked to do any of that. We were never as high as Jesus, obviously. And we will never go as low as he did, death on a cross. So anything in the middle of that, Paul says, I want you to live under his honor and glory by thinking like he thought, serving like he served, loving like he loved, and doing as he did. And so when we, when we reach that, so, okay, well, what does that look like? Um, I'm, I'm kind of being funny, but really not. It means it's really sinful when we lose our mind when somebody steals our parking place. Because I'm sure none of y'all have ever done that. Or, or somebody cuts us off in traffic. Or somebody ate the last Oreo at the house. Do, do you see how crazy bent out of shape we get? Do you see how not like Jesus we can be? And that's why I'm so glad that this passage is in here because I've been reading this since 1994 and I still don't execute 100% of the time. And it's in there because Paul wants our relationships to reflect the gospel. It's so easy to sing about Jesus. It's, it's real easy. I've been preaching a long time. I've preached this passage probably four or five times in my life, maybe more. It's easy. It's not hard. It's easy to sing about it. It's easy to preach about it. We can even fight about it if you'd like. That's easy too. But it is hard to live. And you can't live it apart from depending on Jesus. And in order to depend on Jesus, I can't do that from a distance. I have to come in humility to him before I can operate in humility with you. And so I, I'm really just not going to cover these last verses tonight. I just, I, they're too good. We're just going to make a separate message, I think, out of these next week. And so we will come back next week for the full context of our entire experience. The vertical experience, what you've received from Jesus, the horizontal experience is how we live out. How we live in a relationship with one another is a reflection of the value we assign to what Jesus has done to us. So if, I, if I'm a jerk all the time, it's not just that I'm a jerk, it's that I'm disconnected from, from the treasure of the gospel that has been showered on my life. It means I've got gospel amnesia. I've forgotten how good he's been to me, and that, is, that will be made evident if I'm not operating with you in a Christ-like way. But the full context for our Christian life, both vertical and horizontal, is the lordship of Jesus Christ. That has actually become a debated issue in the last hundred years. There are people who do not believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ. They, they have felt fallen victim to the repeat this prayer after me so you can go to heaven. And then they repeat the prayer. They got eternity sealed. They're going to heaven, but they're going to live like hell. And they think that they can go to heaven that way. And that's not biblical. It's not. So when, when the closer we get to the end of the age, some people will probably, the older I get, they'll just say, well, he's gotten grumpy as he's gotten older. No, I just want to stay biblical. And so I don't, I don't want anybody under my watch to ever hear me say, just pray this prayer, ask Jesus in your heart, try your best not to sin anymore, and then let's go through the pearly gates one day and celebrate because grandma's there. That is the sentimentalized view of Christianity in our modern day, and it is a heresy. What is the actual testimony of what it means to be a Christian? Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross every day and follow me. He literally says, we will carry a cross. He also says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? And so this issue of lordship, although none of us, don't go home scared, none of us perfectly execute. I get that. But friends, I believe that the reality, the understanding that none of us are ever perfect has kind of been allowed to become, well, it doesn't matter what we do. And countless people have prayed a religious prayer and they're going to die and they're going to experience a Matthew 7 reality, which is the scariest chapter in all the New Testament, where they stand before the Lord and the Lord is not letting them into glory. And do you know what they say? They said, hey, 
didn't you hear my sermons? It's preachers. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we have a prophetic ministry? And Jesus says, who, who are you? I don't know you. Friends, that is because a lot of religious activity can be done without a heart being submitted to Jesus. And what Jesus says is, submit your heart and you'll actually partner with me in all of the kingdom work that needs to be done. And believe you me, those he partners with, he knows them. Those in Matthew 7, he's like, we haven't met. We've never met. So I didn't mean to end it that ominously, but it gives us something to think about. So if the crowd is small next week, I'll know that y'all were cowards. Amen? <laughs> Let's stand to our feet. <laughs> hey, listen, if you're here tonight, it's not, it's not beyond the Holy Spirit to just go after our heart tonight. I was that guy, by the way. I was the guy who prayed the prayer and lived like hell. And I'm not trying to be irreverent saying that. I lived a hellish life. I was that guy. And so if you're here tonight, whether you live uh, or living a, a jacked up, immoral, sinful life, or whether you're just smug in your own self-righteousness and you think that you're the exception to the rule, man, he's giving me boldness with just a couple of minutes left. Listen, wherever you are tonight, the wisdom of the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I mean, wisdom starts with a moment of trembling before God. But if, if you'll respond right to the tremble by a surrender, by acknowledgement that he is Lord and you no longer will be over your life, that you'll release and you'll believe that his blood has covered your transgressions and you'll surrender. It is a surrender. I can't think of a better word. It's not just a flick, flick of a mental switch. It is a soul surrender. We'll see that next week. Every knee bows. And so your knee either bows here and your tongue either confesses here in, in grace or it bows in judgment. And man, I don't want anybody to go there. So if you're here tonight, listen, I told you how what I expressed when the Lord saved me. It was this. My life is wrecked. You can kill me or you can save me, but I'm done running. I'm not going to ignore you anymore. That's, that's the expression that God honored, that pitiful, pathetic expression of surrender. God honored and radically transformed my life. You have to use your own words. Don't, don't bar anybody's prayer. It's not about poetry with God. It's about a heart that is broken before him and says, Lord Jesus, I've got nothing but a need for your mercy. So would you bow your head and close your eyes? Lord, take these words and awaken life. Just awaken life right now, Lord, in the hearts of any who need it. And Father, for those of us that have been saved, born again, justified, forgiven, pardoned, and accepted, help us to have the mind of Jesus that we can seek the highest good of other people, that we could help advance them in their interest, even at the expense of leaving off from our own interest. Help us, Lord, to see the humility that Jesus aggressively pursued and help us to not fail to be humble like our Lord. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being awesomely patient with all of us. In your name, amen.